Chapter Seven of Kenilworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kenilworth by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Seven. This is he who rides on the court gale, controls its tides, knows all their secret shoals and fatal eddies, whose frown abases and whose smile exults. He shines like any rainbow, and perchance his colors are as transient. Old Play There was some little displeasure and confusion on the Countess's brow, owing to her struggle with Varney's pertinacity, but it was exchanged for an expression of the purest joy and affection as she threw herself into the arms of the noble stranger who entered, and clasping him to her bosom, exclaimed, At length! At length thou art come! Varney discreetly withdrew as his lord entered, and Janet was about to do the same, when her mistress signed her to remain. She took her place at the farther end of the apartment, and continued standing, as if ready for attendance. Meanwhile the earl, for he was of no inferior rank, returned his lady's caress with the most affectionate ardour, but affected to resist when she strove to take his cloak from him. Nay, she said, but I will unmantle you. I must see if you have kept your word to me, and come as the great earl men call thee, and not as heretofore like a private cavalier. Thou art like the rest of the world, Amy, said the earl, suffering her to prevail in the playful contest. The jewels and feathers and silk are more to them than the man whom they adorn. Many a poor blade looks gay in a velvet scabbard. But so cannot men say of thee, thou noble earl, said his lady, as the cloak dropped on the floor, and showed him dressed as princes when they ride abroad. Thou art the good and well-tried steel, whose inly worth deserves, yet disdains its outward ornaments. Do not think Amy can love thee better in this glorious garb than she did when she gave her heart to him, who wore the russet brown cloak in the woods of Devon. And thou too, said the earl, as gracefully and majestically he led his beautiful countess towards the chair of state, which was prepared for them both. Thou too, my love, hast donned a dress which becomes thy rank, though it cannot improve thy beauty. What thinkest thou of our court taste? The lady cast a sidelong glance upon the great mirror as they passed it by, and then said, I know not how it is, but I think not of my own person while I look at the reflection of thine. Sit thou there, she said, as they approached the chair of state, like a thing for men to worship and to wonder at. Ay, love, said the earl, if thou wilt share my state with me. Not so, said the countess. I will sit on this footstool at thy feet, that I may spell over thy splendor, and learn for the first time how princes are attired. And with the childish wonder which her youth and rustic education rendered not only excusable, but becoming, mixed as it was with a delicate show of the most tender conjugal affection, she examined and admired from head to foot the noble form and princely attire of him who formed the proudest ornament of the court of England's maiden queen, renowned as it was for splendid courtiers, as well as for wise counsellors. Regarding affectionately his lovely bride, 
and gratified by her unrepressed admiration the dark eye and noble features of the earl expressed passions more gentle than the commanding and aspiring look which usually sat upon his broad forehead and in the piercing brilliancy of his dark eye and he smiled at the simplicity which dictated the questions she put to him concerning the various ornaments with which he was decorated the embroidered strap as thou callest it around my knee he said is the english garter an ornament which kings are proud to wear see here is the star which belongs to it and here the diamond george the jewel of the order you have heard how king edward and the countess of salisbury oh i know all that tale said the countess slightly blushing and how a lady's garter became the proudest badge of english chivalry even so said the earl and this most honourable order i had the good hap to receive at the same time with three most noble associates the duke of norfolk the marquis of northampton and the earl of rutland i was the lowest of the foreign rank but what then he that climbs the ladder must begin at the first round but this other fair collar so richly wrought with some jewel like a sheep hung by the mill attached to it what said the young countess does that emblem signify this collar said the earl with its double fusils interchanged with these knobs which are supposed to present flint stones sparkling with fire and sustaining the jewel you inquire about is the badge of the noble order of the golden fleece once appertaining to the house of burgundy it hath high privileges my amy belonging to it this most noble order for even the king of spain himself who hath now succeeded to the honours and domains of burgundy may not sit in judgment upon a knight of the golden fleece unless by assistance and consent of the great chapter of the order and is this an order belonging to the cruel king of spain said the countess alas my noble lord that you will defile your noble english breast by bearing such an emblem bethink you of the most unhappy queen mary's days when this same philip held sway with her in england and of the piles which were built for our noblest and our wisest and our most truly sanctified prelates and divines and will you whom men call the standard-bearer of the true protestant faith be contented to wear the emblem and mark of such a romish tyrant as he of spain oh content you my love answered the earl we who spread our sails to gales of court favour cannot always display the ensigns we love the best or at all times refuse sailing under colours which we like not believe me i am not the less good protestant that for policy i must accept the honour offered me by spain in admitting me to this his highest order of knighthood besides it belongs properly to flanders and egmont orange and others have pride in seeing it displayed on an english bosom nay my lord you know your own path best replied the countess and this other collar to what country does this fair jewel belong to a very poor one my love replied the earl this is the order of st andrew revived by the last james of scotland 
It was bestowed on me when it was thought the young widow of France and Scotland would gladly have wedded an English baron. But a free coronet of England is worth a crown matrimonial held at the humour of a woman, and owing only the poor rocks and bogs of the north. The countess paused as if what the earl last said had excited some painful but interesting train of thought, and, as she still remained silent, her husband proceeded. And now, loveliest, your wish is gratified, and you have seen your vassal in such of his trim array as accords with riding vestments, for robes of state and coronets are only for princely halls. Well, then, said the countess, my gratified wish has, as usual, given rise to a new one. And what is it thou canst ask that I can deny? said the fond husband. I wish to see my earl visit this obscure and secret bower, said the countess, in all his princely array, and now methinks I long to sit in one of his princely halls, and see him enter dressed in sober russet, as when he won poor Amy Robesart's heart. That is a wish easily granted, said the earl. The sober russet shall be donned to-morrow, if you will. But shall I, said the lady, go with you to one of your castles, to see how the richness of your dwelling will correspond with your peasant habit? Why, Amy, said the earl, looking round, are not these apartments decorated with sufficient splendor? I gave the most unbounded order, and methinks it has been indifferently well obeyed. But if thou canst tell me aught which remains to be done, I will instantly give direction. Nay, my lord, now you mock me, replied the countess. The gaiety of this rich lodging exceeds my imagination as much as it does my desert. But shall not your wife, my love, at least one day soon, be surrounded with the honour which arises neither from the toils of the mechanic who decks her apartment, nor from the silks and jewels with which your generosity adorns her, but which is attached to her place among the matronage as the avowed wife of England's noblest earl. One day, yes, Amy, my love, one day this shall surely happen, and believe me, thou canst not wish for that day more fondly than I. With what rapture could I retire from labors of state, and cares and toils of ambition, to spend my life in dignity and honor, on my own broad domains, with thee, my lovely Amy, for my friend and companion." But, Amy, this cannot yet be, and these dear but stolen interviews are all I can give to the loveliest and the best beloved of her sex. But why can it not be, urged the countess, in the softest tones of persuasion, why can it not immediately take place, this more perfect, this uninterrupted union, for which you say you wish, and which the laws of God and man alike command? Ah! Did you but desire it half as much as you say, mighty and favoured as you are, who or what should bar your attaining your wish? The earl's brow was overcast. Amy, he said, you speak of what you understand not. We that toil in courts are like those who climb a mountain of loose sand. We dare make no halt until some projecting rock affords us a secure footing and resting place. If we pause sooner, we slide down by our own weight, 
an object of universal derision. I stand high, but I stand not secure enough to follow my own inclination. To declare my marriage were to be the artificer of my own ruin. But believe me, I will reach a point, and that speedily, when I can do justice to thee and to myself. Meantime, poison not the bliss of the present moment, by desiring that which cannot at present be. Let me rather know whether all here is managed to thy liking. How does Foster bear himself to you? In all things respectful, I trust, else the fellow shall dearly rue it. He reminds me sometimes of the necessity of this privacy, answered the lady with a sigh, but that is reminding me of your wishes, and therefore I am rather bound to him than disposed to blame him for it. I have told you the stern necessity which is upon us, replied the earl. Foster is, I note, somewhat sullen of mood, but Varney warrants to me his fidelity and devotion to my service. If thou hast aught, however, to complain of, the mode in which he discharges his duty, he shall abide it. Oh, I have naught to complain of, answered the lady. So he discharges his task with fidelity to you, and his daughter Janet is the kindest and best companion of my solitude. Her little air of precision sits so well upon her. Is she indeed, said the earl. She who gives you pleasure must not pass unrewarded. Come hither, damsel. Janet, said the lady, come hither to my lord. Janet, who, as we already noticed, had discreetly retired to some distance, that her presence might be no check upon the private conversation of her lord and lady, now came forward, and as she made her reverential curtsey, the earl could not help smiling at the contrast which the extreme simplicity of her dress and the prim demureness of her looks made with a very pretty countenance and a pair of black eyes that laughed in spite of their mistress's desire to look grave i am bound to you pretty damsel said the earl for the contentment which your service hath given to this lady as he said this he took from his finger a ring of some price and offered it to janet foster adding wear this for her sake and for mine i am well pleased my lord answered janet demurely that my poor serveth hath gratified my lady whom no one can draw nigh to without desiring to please but we of the precious master holdforth's congregation seek not like the gay daughters of this world to twine gold around our fingers or wear stones upon our necks like the vain women of tyre and of sidon oh what you are a great professor of the precise sisterhood pretty mistress janet said the earl and i think your father's of the same congregation in sincerity i like you both the better for it for i have been prayed for and wished well to in your congregations and you may the better afford the lack of ornament mistress janet because your fingers are slender and your neck white but here is what neither papist nor puritan latitudinarian nor precisian ever boggles or makes mouths at even take it my girl and employ it as you list so saying he put into her hand five broad gold pieces of philip and mary i would not accept this gold either said janet 
but that I hope to find a use for it which will bring a blessing on us all. Even please thyself, pretty Janet, said the earl, and I shall be well satisfied. And I prithee, let them hasten the evening collation. I have bidden Master Barney and Master Foster to sup with us, my lord, said the countess, as Janet retired to obey the earl's commands. Has it your approbation? What you do ever must have so, my sweet Amy, replied her husband, and I am the better pleased thou hast done them this grace, because Richard Varney is my sworn man, and a close brother of my secret counsel, and for the present I must needs repose much trust in this Anthony Foster. I had a boon to beg of thee, and a secret to tell thee, my dear lord, said the countess, with a faltering accent. Let both be for to-morrow, my love, replied the earl. I see they open the folding-doors into the banqueting-parlour, and as I have ridden far and fast, a cup of wine will not be unacceptable. So saying, he led his lovely wife into the next apartment, where Varney and Foster received them with the deepest reverences, which the first paid after the fashion of the court, and the second after that of the congregation. The earl returned their salutation with the negligent curtsey of one long used to such homage, while the countess repaid it with a punctilious solicitude, which showed it was not quite so familiar to her. The banquet at which the company seated themselves corresponded in magnificence with the splendor of the apartment in which it was served up, but no domestic gave his attendance. Janet alone stood ready to wait upon the company, and, indeed, the board was so well supplied with all that could be desired, that little or no assistance was necessary. The earl and his lady occupied the upper end of the table, and Varney and Foster sat beneath the salt, as was the custom with inferiors. The latter, overawed, perhaps, by society, to which he was altogether unused, did not utter a single syllable during the repast, while Varney, with great tact and discernment, sustained just so much of the conversation as, without the appearance of intrusion on his part, prevented it from languishing, and maintained the good humour of the earl at the highest pitch. This man was indeed highly qualified by nature to discharge the part in which he found himself placed, being discreet and cautious on the one hand, and on the other, quick, keen-witted, and imaginative, so that even the countess, prejudiced as she was against him on many accounts, felt and enjoyed his powers of conversation, and was more disposed than she had ever hitherto found herself to join in the praises which the earl lavished on his favourite. The hour of rest at length arrived. The earl and countess retired to their apartment, and all was silent in the castle for the rest of the night. Early on the ensuing morning, Varney acted as the earl's chamberlain, as well as his master of horse, though the latter was his proper office in that magnificent household, where knights and gentlemen of good descent were well contented to hold such menial situations, as nobles themselves held in that of the sovereign. The duties of each of these charges were familiar to Varney, who, sprung from an ancient but somewhat decayed family, was the earl's page during his earlier and more obscure fortunes, and, faithful to him in adversity, 
had afterwards contrived to render himself no less useful to him in his rapid and splendid advance to fortune, thus establishing in him an interest resting both on present and past services, which rendered him an almost indispensable sharer of his confidence. "'Help me to do on a plainer riding-suit, Varney,' said the Earl, as he laid aside his morning-gown, flowered with silk and lined with sables, and put these chains and fetters there, pointing to the collars of the various orders which lay on the table, into their place of security. My neck last night was well-nigh broke with the weight of them. I am half of the mind that they shall gall me no more. They are bonds which knaves have invented to fetter fools. How thinkest thou, Varney? Faith, my good lord, said his attendant, I think fetters of gold are like no other fetters. They are ever the weightier, the welcomer. For all that, Varney, replied his master, I am well nigh resolved they shall buy me to the court no longer. What can further service and higher favour give me, beyond the high rank and large estate which I have already secured? What brought my father to the block, but that he could not bound his wishes within right and reason? I have, you know, had mine own ventures and mine own escapes. I am well nigh resolved to tempt the sea no further, but sit me down in quiet on the shore, and gather cockle-shells with Dan Cupid to aid you said Varney. "'How mean you by that, Varney?' said the Earl, somewhat hastily. "'Nay, my lord,' said Varney, "'be not angry with me. If your lordship is happy in a lady so rarely lovely that, in order to enjoy her company with somewhat more freedom, you are willing to part with all you have hitherto lived for, some of your poor servants may be sufferers. But your bounty hath placed me so high that I shall ever have enough to maintain a poor gentleman in the rank befitting the high office he has held in your lordship's family. You seem discontented when I propose throwing up a dangerous game, which may end in the ruin of both of us. I, my lord, said Varney, surely I have no cause to regret your lordship's retreat. It will not be Richard Varney who will incur the displeasure of majesty and the ridicule of the court when the stateliest fabric that ever was founded upon a prince's favour melts away like a morning frost-work. I would only have you yourself to be assured, my lord, ere you take a step which cannot be retracted, that you consult your fame and happiness in the course you propose. Speak on, then, Varney, said the earl. I tell thee I have determined nothing, and will weigh all considerations on either side. Well, then, my lord, replied Varney, we will suppose the step taken, the frown frowned, the laugh laughed, and the moan moaned. You have retired, we will say, to some one of your most distant castles, so far from court that you hear neither the sorrow of your friends, nor the glee of your enemies. We will suppose, too, that your successful rival will be satisfied, a thing greatly to be doubted with a bridging and cutting away the branches of the great tree, which so long kept the sun from him, and that he does not insist upon tearing you up by the roots. Well, the late prime favourite of England, who wielded her general staff and controlled her parliaments, is now a rural baron, hunting, hawking, drinking fat ale with country esquires, and mustering his men at the command of the high sheriff. Varney, forbear! 
said the earl. Nay, my lord, you must give me leave to conclude my picture. Sussex governs England, the queen's health fails, the succession is to be settled, a road is open to ambition more splendid than ambition ever dreamed of. You hear all this as you sit by the hob, under the shade of your hall chimney. You then begin to think what hopes you have fallen from, and what insignificance you have embraced. And all that you might look, babies in the eye of your fair wife oftener than once a fortnight. I say, Varney, said the earl, no more of this. I said not that the step, which my own ease and comfort would urge me to, was to be taken hastily, or without due consideration to the public safety. Bear witness to me, Varney. I subdue my wishes of retirement, not because I am moved by the call of private ambition, but that I may preserve the position in which I may best serve my country at the hour of need. Order our horses presently. I will wear as formerly one of the livery cloaks, and ride before the port-mantle. Thou shalt be master of the day, Varney. Neglect nothing that can blind suspicion. We will to horse, ere men are stirring. I will but take leave of my lady, and be ready. I impose a restraint on my own poor heart, and would one yet more dear to me. But the patriot must subdue the husband. Having said this in a melancholy but firm accent, he left the dressing apartment. I am glad thou art gone, thought Varney, or practised as I am in the follies of mankind, I had laughed in the very face of thee. Thou mayest tire as thou wilt of thy new bauble, thy pretty piece of painted Eve's flesh there. I will not be thy hindrance. But of thine old bauble, ambition, thou shalt not tire, for as you climb the hill, my lord, you must drag Richard Varney up with you, and if he can urge you to the ascent he means to profit by, believe me, he will spare neither whip nor spur. And for you, my pretty lady, that would be countess outright. You were best not thwart my courses, lest you are called to an old reckoning on a new score. Thou shalt be master, did he say? By my faith, he may find that he spoke truer than he is aware of. And thus he who, in the estimation of so many wise-judging men, can match Burley and Walsingham in policy, and Sussex in war, becomes pupil to his own menial, and all for a hazel eye and a little cunning red and white, and so falls ambition. And yet, if the charms of mortal woman could excuse a man's politic pate for becoming bewildered, my lord had the excuse at his right hand on this blessed evening that has last passed over us. Well, let things roll as they may. He shall make me great, or I will make myself happy. And for that softer piece of creation, if she speak not, out her interview with Tressilian, as well I think she dare not, she also must traffic with me for concealment and mutual support, in spite of all this scorn. I must to the stables. Well, my lord, I order your retinue now. The time may soon come that my master of the horse shall order mine own. What was Thomas Cromwell but a smith's son? And he died, my lord, on a scaffold, doubtless, but that, too, was in character. And what was Ralph Sadler but the clerk of Cromwell? And he has gazed eighteen fair lordships. 
Thea, I know my steerage as well as they. So saying, he left the apartment. In the meanwhile, the earl had re-entered the bedchamber, bent on taking a hasty farewell of the lovely countess, and scarce daring to trust himself in private with her, to hear request again urged, which he found it difficult to parry, yet which his recent conversation with his master of horse had determined him not to grant. He found her in a white cymar of silk lined with furs, her little feet unstockinged and hastily thrust into slippers, her unbraided hair escaping from under her midnight coif with little array but her own loveliness, rather augmented than diminished by the grief which she felt at the approaching moment of separation. Now, God be with thee, my dearest and loveliest, said the earl, scarce tearing himself from her embrace, yet again returning to fold her again and again in his arms, and again bidding farewell, and again returning to kiss, and bid adieu once more. The sun is on the verge of the blue horizon. I dare not stay. Ere this I should have been ten miles from hence. Such were the words with which at length he strove to cut short their parting interview. "'You will not grant my request, then,' said the countess. "'Ah, false knight, did ever lady with bare foot and slipper seek boon of a brave knight, yet return with denial?' "'Anything, Amy, anything thou canst ask, I will grant,' answered the earl. "'Always excepting,' he said, "'that which might ruin us both.' nay said the countess i urge not my wish to be acknowledged in the character which would make me the envy of england as the wife that is of my brave and noble lord the first as the most fondly beloved of english nobles let me but share the secret with my dear father let me but end his misery on my unworthy account they say he is ill the good old kind-hearted man they say asked the earl hastily who says did not barney convey to sir hugh all we dare at present tell him concerning your happiness and welfare and has he not told you that the good old knight was following with good heart and health his favourite and wanted exercise who has dared put other thoughts into your head oh no one my lord no one said the countess something alarmed at the tone in which the question was put but yet my lord i would fain be assured by mine own eyesight that my father is well be contented amy thou canst not now have communication with thy father or his house were it not a deep course of policy to commit no secret unnecessarily to the custody of more than must needs be it were sufficient reason for secrecy that yonder cornish man yonder trebonian or tressilian or whatever his name is haunts the old knight's house, and must necessarily know whatever is communicated there. "'My lord,' answered the countess, "'I do not think it so. My father has been long noted a worthy and honourable man, and for Tressilian, if we can pardon ourselves the ill we have wrought him, I will wager the coronet I am to share with you one day that he is incapable of returning injury for injury.' "'I will not trust him, however, Amy,' said her husband by my honour i will not trust him i would rather the foul fiend intermingle in our secret than this tressilian and why my lord said the countess 
though she shuddered slightly at the tone of determination in which he spoke. Let me but know why you think thus hardly of Tressilian. Madam, replied the earl, my will ought to be sufficient reason. If you desire more, consider how this Tressilian is leagued, and with whom. He stands high in the opinion of this Radcliffe, the Sussex, against whom I am barely able to maintain my ground in the opinion of our suspicious mistress. And if he had had me at such advantage, Amy, as to become acquainted with the tale of our marriage, before Elizabeth were fitly prepared, I were an outcast from her grace for ever, a bankrupt at once in favour and in fortune, perhaps, for she hath in her a touch of her father Henry, a victim, and it may be a bloody one, to her offended and jealous resentment. But why, my lord, again urged his lady, should you deem thus injuriously of a man of whom you know so little? What you do know of Tressilian is through me, and it is I who assure you that, in no circumstances, will he betray your secret. If I did him wrong in your behalf, my lord, I am now the more concerned you should do him justice. You are offended at my speaking of him. What would you say had I actually myself seen him? If you had, replied the earl, you would do well to keep that interview a secret as that which is spoken in a confessional. I seek no one's ruin, but he who thrusts himself on my secret privacy were better look well to his future walk. The bear brooks no one to cross his awful path. Note to reader. The Leicester cognizance was the ancient device adopted by his father, when Earl of Warwick, the bear, and ragged staff. End reader's note. Awful, indeed, said the countess, turning very pale. You are ill, my love, said the earl, supporting her in his arms. Stretch yourself on your couch again. It is but an early day for you to leave it. Have you aught else, involving less than my fame, my fortune, and my life, to ask of me? Nothing, my lord and love, answered the countess faintly. Something there was that I would have told you, but your anger has driven it from my recollection. Reserve it till our next meeting, my love, said the earl fondly, and again embracing her, and barring only those requests which I cannot and dare not grant, thy wish must be more than England and all its dependencies can fulfill, if it is not gratified to the letter. Thus saying, he at length took farewell. At the bottom of the staircase he received from Varney an ample livery cloak and slouched hat, in which he wrapped himself so as to disguise his person and completely conceal his features. Horses were ready in the courtyard for himself and Varney, for one or two of his train, entrusted with the secret so far as to know or guess that the earl intrigued with a beautiful lady at that mansion, though her name and quality were unknown to them, had already been dismissed overnight. Anthony Foster himself had in hand the reign of the earl's palfrey, a stout and able nag for the road, while his old serving man held the bridle of the more showy and gallant steed which Richard Varney was to occupy in the character of master. As the earl approached, however, Varney advanced to hold his master's bridle, and to prevent Foster from paying that duty to the earl which he probably considered as belonging to his own office. Foster scowled at an interference 
which seemed intended to prevent his paying his court to his patron, but gave place to Varney, and the earl, mounting without further observation, and forgetting that his assumed character of a domestic threw him into the rear of his supposed master, rode pensively out of the quadrangle, not without waving his hand repeatedly, in answer to the signals which were made by the countess with her kerchief from the windows of her apartment. While his stately form vanished under the dark archway which led out of the quadrangle, Varney muttered, There goes fine policy, the servant before the master. Then as he disappeared, seized the moment to speak a word with Foster. Thou lookest stark on me, Anthony, he said, as if I had deprived thee of a party nod of my lord, but I have moved him to leave thee a better remembrance for thy faithful service. See here, a purse of as good gold as ever chinked under a miser's thumb and forefinger. I count them, lad, said he, as Foster received the gold with a grim smile, and add to them the goodly remembrance he gave last night to Janet. How's this? How's this? said Anthony Foster hastily. Gave he gold to Janet? Ay, man, wherefore not? Does not her service to his fair lady require guerdon? She shall have none, aunt, said Foster. She shall return it. I know his dotage on one face is as brief as it is deep. His affections are as fickle as the moon. Why, Foster, thou art mad. Thou dost not hope for such good fortune as that my lord should cast an eye on Janet. Who, in the fiend's name, would listen to the thrush while the nightingale is singing? Thrush or nightingale, all is one to the fowler. And, Master Barney, you can sound the quail-pipe most daintily to wile wantons into his nets. I desire no such devil's preferment for Janet as you have brought many a poor maiden to. Dost thou laugh? I will keep one limb of my family, at least, from Satan's clutches, that thou mayest rely on. She shall restore the gold. Ay, or give it to thy keeping, Tony, which will serve as well, answered Varney. But I have that to say which is more serious. Our lord is returning to court in an evil humour for us. How meanest thou? said Foster. Is he tired already of his pretty toy, his plaything yonder? He has purchased her at a monarch's ransom, and I warrant me he rues his bargain. Not a whit, Tony, answered the master of the horse. He dotes on her, and will forsake the court for her. Then down go hopes, possessions, and safety. Church lands are resumed, Tony, and well if the holders be not called to account in exchequer. That were ruin, said Foster, his brow darkening with apprehensions and all this for a woman. Had it been for a soul's sake, it were something. And I sometimes wish I myself could fling away the world that cleaves to me, and be as one of the poorest of our church. Thou art like enough to be so, Tony, answered Varney, but I think the devil will give thee little credit for thy compelled poverty, and so thou losest on all hands. But follow my counsel, and Cumnor Place shall be thy copyhold yet. Say nothing of this Tressilian's visit, not a word, until I give thee notice. And wherefore, I pray you, asked Foster, suspiciously. Dull beast, replied Varney. In my lord's present humour, it were the ready way to confirm him in his resolution of retirement, 
should he know that his lady was haunted with such a spectre in his absence he would be for playing the dragon himself over his golden fruit and then tony thy occupation is ended a word to the wise farewell i must follow him he turned his horse struck him with the spurs and rode off under the archway in pursuit of his lord would thy occupation were ended or thy neck broken damned pander said anthony foster but i must follow his beck for his interest and mine are the same and he can wind the proud earl to his will janet shall give me those pieces though they shall be laid out in some way for god's service and i will keep them separate in my strong chest till i can fall upon a fitting employment for them no contagious vapour shall breathe on janet she shall remain pure as the blessed spirit were it but to pray god for her father i need her prayers for i am at a hard pass strange reports are abroad concerning my way of life the congregation look cold on me and when master holdforth spoke of hypocrites being like a whited sepulchre which within was full of dead men's bones methought he looked full at me the romish was a comfortable faith lamborne spoke true in that a man had but to follow his thrift by such ways as offered tell his beads hear a mass confess and be absolved these puritans tread a harder and a rougher path but i will try i will read my bible for an hour ere i again open mine iron chest varney meantime spurred after his lord whom he found waiting for him at the postern gate of the park you waste time varney said the earl and it presses i must be at woodstock before i can safely lay aside my disguise until then i journey in some peril it is but two hours prescribing my lord said varney for me i only stop to enforce your commands of care and secrecy on yonder foster and to inquire about the abode of the gentleman whom i would promote to your lordship's train in the room of trevor's is he fit for the meridian of the antechamber thinkest thou said the earl he promises well my lord replied varney but if your lordship were pleased to ride on i could go back to cumnor and bring him to your lordship at woodstock before you are out of bed why i am asleep there thou knowest at this moment said the earl and i pray you not to spare horse-flesh that you may be with me at my levy so saying he gave his horse the spur and proceeded on his journey while varney rode back to cumnor by the public road avoiding the park the latter alighted at the door of the bonny black bear and desired to speak with master michael lamborne that respectable character was not long of appearing before his new patron but it was with downcast looks thou hast lost the scent said varney of thy comrade tressilian i know it by thy bang-dog visage is this thy alacrity thou impudent knave cogs wounds said lamborne there was never a trail so finely hunted i saw him to earth at mine uncle's here stuck to him like beeswax saw him at supper watched him to his chamber and presto he's gone next morning the very hostler knows not where this sounds like practice upon me sir replied varney and if it proves so by my soul you shall repent it sir the best hound will be sometimes at fault answered lamborne 
how should it serve me that this fellow should have thus evanished you may ask mine host giles gosling ask the tapster and hostler ask cicely and the whole household how i kept eyes on tressilian while he was on foot on my soul i could not be expected to watch him like a sick nurse when i had seen him fairly abed in his chamber that will be allowed me surely varney did in fact make some inquiry among the household which confirmed the truth of lambourne's statement tressilian it was unanimously agreed had departed suddenly and unexpectedly betwixt night and morning but i will wrong no one said mine host he left on the table in his lodging the full value of his reckoning with some allowance to the servants of the house which was the less necessary that he saddled his own gelding as it seems without the hostler's assistance thus satisfied of the rectitude of lambourne's conduct varney began to talk to him upon his future prospects and the mode in which he meant to bestow himself intimating that he understood from foster he was not disinclined to enter into the household of a nobleman have you said he ever been at court no replied lambourne but ever since i was ten years old i have dreamt once a week that i was there and made my fortune it may be your own fault if your dream comes not true said varney are you needy mm, replied lambourne i love pleasure that is a sufficient answer and an honest one said varney know you aught of the requisites expected from the retainer of a rising courtier i have imagined them to myself sir answered lambourne as for example a quick eye a closed mouth a ready and bold hand a sharp wit and a blunt conscience and thine i suppose said varney has had its edge blunted long since i cannot remember sir that its edge was ever over keen replied lambourne when i was a youth i had some few whimsies but i rub them partly out of my recollection on the rough grindstone of the wars and what remained i washed out in the broad waves of the atlantic thou hast served then in the indies in both east and west answered the candidate for court service by both sea and land i have served both the portugal and the spaniard both the dutchman and the frenchman and have made war on our own account with the crew of jolly fellows who held there was no peace beyond the line readers note sir francis drake morgan and many a bold buccaneer of those days were in fact little better than pirates End readers note. thou mayest do me and my lord and thyself good service said varney after a pause but observe i know the world and answer me truly canst thou be faithful did you not know the world answered lambourne it were my duty to say ay without further circumstance and to swear to it with life and honour and so forth but as it seems to me that your worship is one who desires rather honest truth than politic falsehood i reply to you that i can be faithful to the gallows foot ay to the loop that dangles from it if i am well used and well recompensed not otherwise to thy other virtues thou canst add no doubt said varney in a jeering tone the knack of seeming serious and religious when the moment demands it it would cost me nothing said lambourne to say yes 
but to speak on the square i must needs say no if you want a hypocrite you may take anthony foster who from his childhood had some sort of phantom haunting him which he called religion though it was that sort of godliness which always ended in being great gain but i have no such knack of it well replied varney if thou hast no hypocrisy hast thou not a nag here in the stable ay sir said lambourne that shall take hedge and ditch with my lord duke's best hunters then i made a little mistake on shooter's hill and stopped an ancient grazier whose pouches were better lined than his brain-pan the bonny bay nag carried me sheer off in spite of the whole hue and cry saddle him then instantly and attend me said varney leave thy clothes and baggage under charge of mine host and i will conduct thee to a service in which if thou do not better thyself the fault shall not be fortune's but thine own brave and hardy said lambourne and i am mounted in an instant knave hostler saddle my nag without the loss of one second as thou dost value the safety of thy noddle pretty cicely take half this purse to comfort thee for my sudden departure gog's nouns replied the father cicely wants no such token from thee go away mike and gather grace if thou canst though i think thou goest not to the land where it grows let me look at this cicely of thy mine host said varney i have heard much talk of her beauty it is a sunburnt beauty said mine host well qualified to stand out rain and wind but little calculated to please such critical gallants as yourself she keeps her chamber and cannot encounter the glance of such sunny-day courtiers as my noble guest well peace be with her my good host answered varney our horses are impatient we bid you good day does my nephew go with you so please you said gosling ay such is his purpose answered richard varney you are right fully right replied mine host you are i say fully right my kinsman thou hast got a gay horse see thou light not unaware upon a halter or if thou wilt needs be made immortal by means of a rope which thy purpose of following this gentleman renders not unlikely i charge thee to find a gallows as far from cumnor as thou conveniently mayest and so i commend you to your saddle the master of the horse and his new retainer mounted accordingly leaving the landlord to conclude his ill-omened farewell to himself and at leisure and set off together at a rapid pace which prevented conversation until the ascent of a steep sandy hill permitted them to resume it you are contented then said varney to his companion to take court service ay worshipful sir if you like my terms as well as i like yours and what are your terms demanded varney if i am to have a quick eye for my patron's interest he must have a dull one towards my faults said lambourne ay said varney so they lie not so grossly open that he must needs break his shins over them agreed said lambourne next if i run down game i must have the picking of the bones that is but reason replied varney so that your betters are served before you good said lambourne and it only remains to be said that if the law and i quarrel my patron must bear me out for that is a chief point reason again said varney if the quarrel hath happened in your master's service 
for the wage and so forth i say nothing proceeded lambourne it is the secret guerdon that i must live by never fear said varney thou shalt have clothes and spending money to ruffle it with the best of thy degree for thou goest to a household where you have gold as they say by the eye that jumps all with my honour replied michael lambourne and it only remains that you tell me my master's name my name is master richard varney answered his companion but i mean said lambourne the name of the noble lord to whose service you are to prefer me how knave art thou too good to call me master said varney hastily i would have thee bold to others but not saucy to me i crave your worship's pardon said lambourne but you seem familiar with anthony foster now i am familiar with anthony myself thou art a shrewd knave i see replied varney mark me i do indeed propose to introduce thee into a nobleman's household but it is upon my person thou wilt chiefly wait and upon my countenance that thou wilt depend i am his master of horse thou wilt soon know his name it is one that shakes the council and wields the state by this light a brave spell to conjure with said lambourne if a man would discover hidden treasures use with discretion it may prove so replied varney but mark if thou conjure with it at thine own hand it may raise a devil who will tear thee in fragments enough said replied lambourne i will not exceed my limits the travellers then resumed the rapid rate of travelling which their discourse had interrupted and soon arrived at the royal park of woodstock this ancient possession of the crown of england was then very different from what it had been when it was the residence of the fair rosamond and the scene of henry the second secret and illicit amours and yet more unlike to the scene which it exhibits in the present day when blenheim house commemorates the victory of marlborough and no less the genius of vanbrugh though decried in his own time by persons of taste far inferior to his own it was in elizabeth's time an ancient mansion in bad repair which had long ceased to be honoured with the royal residence to the great impoverishment of the adjacent village the inhabitants however had made several petitions to the queen to have the favour of the sovereign's countenance occasionally bestowed upon them and upon this very business ostensibly at least was the noble lord whom we have already introduced to our readers a visitor at woodstock varney and lambourne galloped without ceremony into the courtyard of the ancient and dilapidated mansion which presented on that morning a scene of bustle which it had not exhibited for two reigns officers of the earl's household liverymen and retainers went and came with all the insolent fracas which attaches to their profession the neigh of horses and the baying of hounds were heard for my lord in his occupation of inspecting and surveying the manor and domain was of course provided with the means of following his pleasure in the chase or park said to have been the earliest that was enclosed in england and which was well stocked with deer that had long roamed there unmolested several of the inhabitants of the village in anxious hope of a favourable result from this unwanted visit loitered about the courtyard and awaited the great man's coming forth their attention was excited by the hasty arrival of varney and a murmur ran amongst them the earl's master of the horse while they hurried to bespeak favour by hastily 
unbonneting and proffering to hold the bridle and stirrup of the favoured retainer and his attendant stand somewhat aloof my masters said varney haughtily and let the domestics do their office the mortified citizens and peasants fell back at the signal while lambourne who had his eye upon his superior's deportment repelled the services of those who offered to assist him with yet more discourtesy stand back jack peasant with a murrain to you and let these knave footmen do their duty while they gave their nags to the attendants of the household and walked into the mansion with an air of superiority which long practice and consciousness of birth rendered natural to varney and which lambourne endeavoured to imitate as well as he could the poor inhabitants of woodstock whispered to each other well a day god save us from all such misproud printcoxes and the master be like the men why the fiend may take all and yet have no more than his due silence good neighbours said the bailiff keep tongue betwixt teeth we shall know more by and by but never will lord come to woodstock so welcome as bluff old king harry he would horsewhip a fellow one day with his own royal hand and then fling him a handful of silver groats with his own broad face on them to anoint the sore withal ay rust be with him echoed the auditors it will be long ere this lady elizabeth horsewhip any of us there is no saying answered the bailiff meanwhile patience good neighbours and let us comfort ourselves by thinking that we deserve such notice at her grace's hands meanwhile varney closely followed by his new dependent made his way to the hall where men of more note and consequence than those left in the courtyard awaited the appearance of the earl who was yet kept his chamber all paid court to varney with more or less deference as suited their own rank or the urgency of the business which brought them to his lord's levy to the general question of when comes my lord forth master varney he gave brief answers as see you not my boots i am but just returned from oxford and know nothing of it and the like until the same query was put in a higher tone by a personage of more importance i will inquire of the chamberlain sir thomas copley was the reply the chamberlain distinguished by his silver key answered that the earl only awaited master varney's return to come down but that he would first speak with him in his private chamber varney therefore bowed to the company and took leave to enter his lord's apartment there was a murmur of expectation which lasted a few minutes and was at length hushed by the opening of the folding doors at the upper end of the apartment through which the earl made his entrance marshalled by his chamberlain and the steward of his family and followed by richard varney in his noble mien and princely features men read nothing of that insolence which was practised by his dependents his courtesies were indeed measured by the rank of those to whom they were addressed but even the meanest person present had a share of his gracious notice the inquiries which he made respecting the condition of the manor of the queen's rights there and of the advantages and disadvantages which might attend her occasional residence at the royal seat of woodstock seemed to show that he had most earnestly investigated the manner of the petition of the inhabitants and with a desire to forward the interest of the place now the lord love his noble countenance said the bailiff who had thrust himself into the presence chamber he looks somewhat pale i warrant him he hath spent the whole night in perusing our memorial 
Master Tuffyorn, who took six months to draw it up, said it would take a week to understand it, and see if the Earl hath not knocked the mare out of it in twenty-four hours. The Earl then acquainted them that he should move their sovereign to honour Woodstock occasionally with her residence during her royal progresses, that the town and its vicinity might derive from her countenance and favour the same advantages as from those of her predecessors. Meanwhile, he rejoiced to be the expounder of her gracious pleasure in assuring them that for the increase of trade and encouragement of the worthy Burgesses of Woodstock, her majesty was minded to erect the town into a staple for wool. This joyful intelligence was received with the acclamations not only of the better sort who were admitted to the audience chamber, but of the commons who awaited without. The freedom of the corporation was presented to the earl upon knee by the magistrates of the place, together with a purse of gold pieces, which the earl handed to Varney, who on his part gave a share to Lamborn, as the most acceptable earnest of his new service. The earl and his retinue took horse soon after to return to court, accompanied by the shouts of the inhabitants of Woodstock, who made the old oaks ring with re-echoing, Long live Queen Elizabeth and the noble Earl of Leicester! The urbanity and courtesy of the Earl, even through a gleam of popularity over his attendants, as their haughty deportment had formerly obscured that of their master, and men shouted, Long life to the Earl and to his gallant followers! As Varney and Lamborn, each in his rank, rode proudly through the streets of Woodstock. End chapter 7